don't know if you guys picked up on that, but that was like the hardest scripture reading I've ever made someone do. So thank you, Kelly. Good job. Uh, I love a good underdog story, especially in a sports movie. It's just one of my favorite things. And uh, there's a movie in 2004 that came out. It's a long time ago now, but it was called Miracle. Do you remember this? It was about the 1980 uh, U.S. men's Olympic hockey team. And if you remember, Kurt Russell plays the famous coach, Herb Brooks, uh, who built that Olympic team. And he had a seemingly impossible task before him. He had to build a team that could compete with the invincible Soviet hockey team at that time. And I went and I looked this up, but uh, that Soviet team had won gold the last four Olympics. So that's a, a quarter of a century of dominance in the sport. And the movie is full of great scenes. It does an all-time locker room speech yeah, if you want to go watch it again. But one scene in particular stood out to me as I was reflecting on this story today. Uh, Coach Brooks is in his office. He's, he's looking out on the ice, and it's tryouts. So there's all these guys skating around, and he's got to cut that team down. I think it's like 25 or 26 on the roster for the actual Olympic Games. And so he's starting to make roster cuts. And he knows that the Soviets have all the talent, they have all the big names, they have all the pedigree, and he's got to build a team to beat them. And so eventually in the scene, one of his assistant coaches joins him, and they're talking, and uh, Coach Brooks kind of hands him a piece of paper and says, hey, here's what I'm thinking for my initial roster for this team. And the assistant coach looks at the paper and looks at Coach Brooks and looks at the paper, and he's, he's incredulous, and he, he says, you don't even have all the best players on this roster. And Coach Brooks says this in response. He says, I'm not looking for the best players. I'm looking for the right ones. And of course, the right players, not the best players, the right players would go on to beat that team and win gold in 1980. I know the book of Judges is not about a hockey game, so rest assured. But I could not help thinking about this movie because I think that line captures what God is doing in this story. So God's people are facing impossible odds, and we'll get to that in a minute. They're in real trouble in this story. And what God does in, when things seem most hopeless is he starts to put a team together in Judges chapter 4. And some of the names don't make sense on paper. So we're in a series, if you've been with us, on forgotten families. So we're looking at characters and stories in the Bible that we often overlook or we outright forget along the way. And this morning, we're looking at Deborah and Jael in this story. They're not the only characters in the story, but they are part of God's surprising response to oppression in Judges. So if you brought your Bible turn to the book of Judges, chapter 4. You can use your table of contents if you need to. It's, it can be a tricky book to find. That's where we're going to be in chapter 4. Judges, by the way, is one of my absolute favorite books of the Bible, but it can be a little tricky to understand and to read the right way. So let me give you a little background. It, it records the period of Israel's history uh, right after the conquest of the promised land. So you remember Moses leads the people through the Red Sea, and they're free from Egypt, and God eventually brings them to Canaan, the promised land, and they enter that land. And God actually gives Israel specific geographical instructions when they enter the land about where each tribe, there's 12 tribes, where each tribe's inheritance will be. 
So Judah, you're here. Benjamin, you're here, right? He, he, he names all the tribes. That's the end of the book of Joshua. And he leaves them with this command, God does. He says, drive out the people completely from the land. And earlier in Joshua, we see the evil practices of the Canaanites and the Philistines. And God says, drive them out completely and take your possession, take your inheritance in faith is the idea. That's how Joshua ends. At the beginning of Judges, which comes right after that, we learn that basically every tribe failed to do what God asked them to do. None of them have taken possession of the land completely. They've taken most of it or some of it, and they kind of went, you know what? We're tired. We're not going to do this anymore. We're good. We'll leave them alone. They'll leave us alone. We're good. And they were decidedly not good. Really bad things happen. So we're jumping into this book, okay, into this story. So let me give you just a cliff notes of how to read Judges. Okay, that's the background. That's the history. There are two literary features that are really important in Judges. The first is uh, what you might call the cycle of sin and oppression in Judges. So Judges moves in a cycle over and over and over again. It starts with Israel, because she has failed to drive out the Gentiles in the promised land, the idolaters, they are influenced by them instead, and they begin to worship false gods alongside of Yahweh. So it starts with that, and, and it leads to oppression of God's people. So the Gentiles outright oppress them until it becomes so unbearable that God's people finally cry out in repentance to God, help us, and he raises up a judge, a deliverer, and that's where the book gets its name. Judges, by the way, don't think like Judge Judy. That's not what that word means. Just think like William Wallace from Braveheart, like a, a military warrior uh, who can actually free God's people from oppression, which happens in each cycle, and it leads to a period of peace for some amount of years, and then the cycle starts all over again. That's the book over and over and over again. So for those of you keeping score at home, it looks something like this. There's a cycle of sin and judges idolatry, oppression, repentance, deliverance by a judge, peace, and then all over again. Each story basically goes like that. That's the first literary feature. The second you need to know, the second way that the book of Judges works is like a toilet bowl. And here's what I mean. In the midst of these cycles, the further you get in the book, the more their moral character is going down the drain. So the judges, the more words there are about a judge in general, the worse their character and faithfulness to God actually is. So that by the time you finish the book with, it's actually you don't finish the book with Samson, but he's the final judge and he's the absolute worst. He's the least faithful judge in the whole book. God uses him anyway, but he's the worst. Here in Judges 4, we're kind of in the middle of this. So things aren't so bad yet. It's like somebody, Deborah's not a bad judge. She doesn't have any uh, kind of mortal character flaws like the others do. It's, so it's almost like someone is just starting to flush the toilet, but it has, I'm, I'm, just, I'm not going to keep doing that. Okay, that's gross. That's gross. Not helpful. So, but, but that story does open with Jabin, the king of Hazor. The people are doing evil again, and now they're oppressed by this Canaanite, Jabin. Jabin's general Sisera, we hear about him, leads an army with 900 chariots of iron. And that detail is important. It's meant to scare you. So if you were an original reader of this story and you read 900 chariots of iron, that's very intimidating. In fact, the chariot of iron in almost all of the conquest stories, so back in Joshua, into Judges, and then further into the Bible, 
the chariot of iron becomes this archetype piece of technology that has a tendency to get the best of God's people. It leads them to doubt God's power, right? The Psalms, some trust in chariots, some trust in horses. It becomes this picture of God's people melting before uh, impossible odds. Now, this guy has 900 of those chariots, so it's like, whoa, what? And that explains how Jabin is able to oppress God's people economically and politically for 20 years, which is the longest period of oppression so far in Judges. This is bad. It does not look good. So what is God going to do? What is his response to impossible odds? And our first surprise in what God does is this. He raises up Deborah. That's verse 4. Deborah. Deborah is a prophetess. She's a mouthpiece for God to his people. It's similar to Miriam, whom we talked about last week. And she is portrayed here as already being a leader among God's people. She goes to the same place every day. The people come to her for a judgment, and she's a leader. She's the first and only woman called a judge in the book, uh, which again is very unusual at, in, the, in uh, the ancient world to have a female leader like this. We talked a lot about that dynamic last week. If you missed that sermon, I invite you to, to listen to that. Uh, it's really, really important. She, uh, so Deborah's a woman. She's also not a warrior, and that's unusual too. The judges were almost all military figures. Deborah is not. But she speaks for God, and God tells her to call Barak. Barak, we don't know much about him, but he's clearly some kind, he's the military guy, he's the fighter, and he's got the backing of several tribes of Israel. That's verse 6. So he's, you know, he's got something to bring to the table. God's putting the team together, like I said, and Deborah is the brains, and he's the brawn. And so Deborah looks at uh, Barak and, and on behalf of God says this in verse 6, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you? Go, gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun. And I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops. And I will give him into your hand. So God, through Deborah, calls Barak, despite the odds, and says, I've got this. Trust me, I'll take care of this. Go get your army. But listen to how Barak responds. This is verse 8. This is, he's speaking now to Deborah. He says, if you, Deborah, will go with me, then I'll go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. And here's the thing. Barak is a good guy in general. I think he's a good guy. Uh, but this is not a good look for him. This, these first words from his mouth, not a good look. And we're going to talk more about this later, but this is our first hint in the entire book of Judges about judge failure, a character flaw. This hesitancy in Barak is not a good sign for him. He should not need Deborah as his security blanket on the battlefield. She's told him what God said. She's given him the command. He knows what to do. That should be enough. But God is not surprised by Barak's hesitancy. He already has a plan. This is uh, Deborah in verse 9. She says, I surely will go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Now, it's, it's a little difficult here to know if Barak is being punished for his hesitancy, and that's kind of the, what Deborah's getting at, or if Deborah is just warning Barak about what's the, hey, this story's not going to go the way you think it's going to go. Uh, I think it's probably a little bit of both, but there's disagreement on how to interpret her response to him here. Anyway, 
she says that. Barak gathers his army at Kadesh, and she, he brings Deborah, and Sisera hears about this army gathering. And he thinks they're going to take the high ground up in Mount Tabor to hide. And so Sisera knows, if I, can, if I can get my chariots down there and surround them, it's over. They cannot beat me. So he rushes down to meet this army. And here again, Deborah takes the initiative, verse 14, and says to Barak, up, this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? So Barak obeys and surprises Sisera in the open field by the river Kishon and not in the mountains like Sisera was anticipating. And I think that surprise as well as perhaps marshy ground near the river makes the chariots absolutely useless. And just like God said, Barak and his army completely rout the Canaanites and they pursue them all the way back where they came from. Now, what they don't know, but the, you and I know as the reader, is that Sisera slipped away. That's verse 17. So the general, the prize, got away. At some point during the battle, he realized we are not going to win. He got off his chariot and fled. And specifically, he fled to Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, for there was peace between Jabin, the king of Hazor, and the house of Heber the Kenite. So you're, maybe you're wondering, who are, who are in the world of the Kenites? Well, they're a part of Israel. They are the descendants of Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, who was not ethnically Israelite. But he was spiritually grafted in in the Exodus narratives, and the Kenites are now a part of Israel, but they are a separate ethnic group. Heber is one of them. But he's withdrawn from his own people and is living by himself near the Canaanites, and actually the Hebrew tells us has shalom, has peace, with these evil oppressors. So he's, this is not a good guy. And, and uh, Sisera has found his wife, Jael. And Sisera goes uh, to this area looking for help. He knows, I've got an ally here. And Jael sees him. Her husband's not at home. She sees Sisera and says, hey, psst, hide in here. Come on, don't be scared. It's all going to be okay. I'll take care of you. She literally mothers him. That, that's the imagery. Sisera, who's been running for his life all day, he, he, he falls down exhausted in this tent, and he asks for water. Jael brings him nice warm milk instead, and she puts a little blankie on him. She says, it's okay, Sisera, I'll protect you. She sings him a lullaby, and while Sisera is right, he can barely keep his eyes open from exhaustion. He says, hey, listen, he's still giving commands. Hey, listen, if anybody comes to the tent, and asks if there's anyone here, tell them, no, no one is here. And she says, shh, go to sleep. I've got it. I'll take care of it. Verse 21, but Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand. She went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple until it went down into the ground while he was lying fast asleep from weariness. And just in case you didn't know, so he died. <laughs> I know this is a worship together Sunday, so there's a lot of kids in the room, and I apologize to all the parents for the conversations you may need to have later. However, what no kid can leave today saying is the Bible is boring. It really, really isn't boring. Um, this certainly isn't. This is an incredible plot twist, by the way. I read it that way on purpose, because if you're reading this story for the first time, you do not anticipate this at all. It completely floors you. Everything we know about JL so far tells us that she will t help Sisera. They're allies, right? She's, she's, she's just a woman. That's what Sisera thinks. She's not going to do anything to me. But certainly Sisera thought that. There's no threat here. And then wham, it is over. God's like, 
That's the end of that. That's the end of that story. At some point, Barak, who's pursuing the army, realizes Sisera is not here. I got to go finish that guy off. So he comes back down looking for him and Jael flags him down and says, hey, look what I did and shows him what's left of Sisera. And Barak realizes this is what Deborah meant back when she first called me. And Barak and Israel, eventually they will uh, take down the rest of Jabin's armies and they actually overthrow him and there's, there's peace in the land. That's verse 24, the end of chapter four. Judges five is this really beautiful worship poem Actually, at some points, it's rather jarring, and it's a poetic worship song uh, that is a description of the events that have just occurred, which is unique to Judges, and we'll come back to that. And at the end of chapter 5, you get, you get the end of the judge cycle. The land had rest for 40 years. That's when you know the story's over. There's a new judge to come. When God's people are up against impossible odds, what does God do? This is the driving tension of this story. And what we see is God pulls together a, a team, a group, of, a group of forgotten family who have at least three characteristics that are unique to them. And that's what I want to, to focus on, okay? Deborah and Jael in particular highlight these. The first is that God uses willing people. Against impossible odds, he uses willing people. You get, you, what, what set Deborah and Jael apart in this story is their willingness to obey and to let God use them, even in really shocking or surprising ways. You see this especially with Deborah, who sits under her tree every day and makes herself available to God and to his people. She's available and willing to do for God whatever he asks her to do, daily. Barak, by way of contrast, is not willing. Eventually he comes around, eventually he does the right thing, but his hesitancy with Deborah is not good. Remember what Deborah tells him. She says, this is what God commands you to do today. Now, Barak's response is not obedience. It's not even questions or curiosity. It is conditions. It would be one thing for Barak to say, yes, Deborah, I will obey. I believe. But I would really feel better if you came with me. That would be one thing. But he doesn't do that. Instead, he says, I will not do what God has asked me to do unless you come with me. So notice with me, we're being set up. Barak looks the part. He's, he's male, he's strong, he's clearly got the hearts of the people. He raises an army. I mean, that's no small feat to get people to follow you. He's one of the best, we might say he's one of the best players on the ice, but he fails at the exact point that God cares about the most. He is not willing he does not trust. He gives conditions. This, by the way, will be one of the major sin issues throughout the book of Judges. Everyone is presented as just sitting around, unwilling to work with God, not unable to work with God, unwilling to work with him. Even in this story, notice only a few tribes of all of Israel rally around to help Barak free them from oppression. In fact, not one time in the entire book of Judges do all of God's people in faith work alongside of God in his act of redemption. Not one time. They're unwilling. This is why the song in chapter 5, which uh, begins this way, and I, you, if you're in the form.life, you memorized these verses. 
It says that the leaders took the lead in Israel and the people offered themselves willingly. Bless the Lord. Willing. There's a sense in which the first thing God looks for when he's, he's looking for people he can really use, it's like that old sports cliche. The number one ability is availability. If you are willing, there is not much that God cannot do with you. So our application, our thought, let's drop the conditions with God. Not only do we disobey when we, when we don't, when we give God conditions, we actually miss out on what he's doing. Barak is this close from missing out on the entire story of being too unwilling for God to use him in this incredible deliverance. This close. God wants to use his people in incredible ways, but are we willing or not? Are we giving God conditions? What fears, what concerns are tempting us to say to God, I'll do that when, I'll consider that if? Where in our lives are we, are we holding back from God? Right? I'm gonna, God, I'll look the part here on Sunday, but not in, on Monday. That's, that's me time. You get this, I get this. Where are we being conditional with him that we need to drop, we need to stop? God uses willing, available people. And actually uses weak people. And I'm putting weak here in quotes because it's a perceived weakness. And here, the whole point of JL's story in this narrative is God's showing that where we see weakness, he sees strength. Sisera walks in to this woman's tent and he thinks, I am in complete control. There's nothing she's gonna do to me. She's going to take care of me. She's a woman. She can't hurt me. She's an ally. She's too weak. She's also likely a Gentile. We don't know her ethnicity. It's never spelled out. The Kenites I mentioned are, are ethnically not Israel. Um, but Jael is compared later in Judges chapter 5 to Shamgar, who's another judge. And he is for sure a Canaanite. He was not an Israelite. And Jael is compared to him. And so I think it's likely that she's a Canaanite too. So think about this with me. In the narrative, like in the flow of the story, we're reading about oh, oh, someone who's the wrong gender and the wrong ethnicity for God to use, right? You're reading along and says, well, God's not going to use her. Her weapon, by the way, is a powerful metaphor. It's a tent peg. And you have to remember that at this time, um, it, these were nomadic cultures. And so tearing down and building up the tent happened every day or multiple times. It happened a lot. And it was considered women's work. The woman of the home would, was in charge of putting the tent up and breaking it down. In other words, the tent peg is like a domestic image. It is, it is, it is commonplace. It is not threatening. So this isn't a perfect analogy, but if we were writing the story to a 1950s American audience, we would have J.L. kill Cicero with like a vacuum cleaner. <laughs> and again, that's a stereotype, I know, but that's the point. It's a deadly play on stereotype. By the way, don't miss this. J.L. is the tent peg. That's who she is. She's a weak instrument in the hands of a very powerful God. In fact, she is, in the course of the narrative, the female Gentile housewife whom God uses to do what the men of Israel refused to do for 20 years. That is to fight God's enemies in faith. They don't do it for 20 years. 
Jael is a picture, other than the whole like killing this guy part, she's a picture of disciples of Jesus, actually. Followers of Jesus are described in a similar way. Listen, this is how Apostle, the Apostle Paul puts this in 1 Corinthians. When he's talking about you and me, in verse, chapter 1 of verse 27, he says, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. That's jail. So here's my application. Okay? Embrace the weakness. Embrace it. Recognize that God can use anyone and everyone for his purposes, but he delights in particular in using our weakness to show his power. There's a reason Paul the Apostle says, I not only have weaknesses, I boast in them. Because it's God's power that works in me. One of the most powerful things that followers of Jesus can do is show the world that feels like it has to look the part, it has to be okay, hey, that we don't look the part. We're not the perfect team. We don't always have it together, that we struggle, and yes, we even fail, but that God loves us and uses us anyway. That weakness is a powerful tool in the hands of a good God. Embrace the weakness. Showcase it. Boast in it for God's glory, which is kind of where we're going here. Last thing, God uses humble people. One of the really unique features of the story is how many characters there are. Uh, that's unusual in the book of Judges. Um, this is the first and only team effort in the book of Judges. So if you go and read Gideon and Samson and Ehud and Othniel, those guys work alone. Okay, they're by themselves. Here, Deborah needs Barak. Barak needs Jael. No one seems to know what the whole plan is. No one gets all the credit from a human perspective. That's why I think the story ends in praise. It ends in worship. In chapter 5, it's the only judge cycle to do that. The human characters recognize humbly that God gets the glory for everything that's happened. They cannot take credit for what happened. Even Barak, to his credit, does not throw a hissy fit when he finds out that Jael was used instead of him, at least in the narrative. As I picture it, I think he walks into that tent, and when he gets over the gore that he's looking at, he kind of takes a deep breath and smiles and says, God, thank you for Jael. You used her, to get, and now I, you, you, you told me this was going to happen. He gives God the glory, so let's give him the glory. Let us give him the glory. There's a sense in which the destiny the warning laid out for Barak is actually for anyone who wants to follow Jesus. The path you are on will not lead to your glory. It leads to someone else's. And God does his best work when he appears to be up against the wall. I, I, I think God rubs his hands together when he sees 900 chariots between him and his goal. He says, now I'm going to show you who I am. Now you're going to see what I'm capable of. And it's a reminder, a stark reminder to his people that he is in charge, that he always wins, and that we can trust him and give him the glory. In some ways, the lesson of Judges, the very heart of Judges, is that when people lose their worship, when we lose God's glory, when we don't see it anymore, idolatry is soon to follow. Because if we do not adore Jesus, if we do not worship him, we will adore something. We will follow someone. And we see here God's deliverance for Barak and Jael and Deborah is as beautiful as it is. 
It's got nothing compared on the deliverance, compared to the deliverance we have seen, to the judge who came to us. Remember, we have seen God himself in the midst of our oppression and our sin and our idolatry, sent from heaven, obeying his Father, even though he is a prince, a cosmic prince. He enters our world to fight on our behalf. We've seen him descend in weakness in human flesh, even though he is the creator and the designer of the universe. And we have seen him humble himself, even to death on a cross, in order to rescue us. Not from physical enemies, not from Canaanites and Philistines, but from the cycle of sin itself, the whole thing. He came to save everybody from that, what no judge could do in the book of Judges. When I went back and watched uh, the YouTube clip of that 1980s game, when the, US, when the clock sh- shows zero and, they, and the U.S. team has won, that place erupts in, like, praise. No one saw that coming. Okay. What should our response be? Well, if you're here and this is, like, your church home and you believe in Jesus, it's because you are convinced that the Lord of the universe delivered you from impossible odds against an unbeatable adversary by dying and rising again. Al Michaels ends that, right? Do you believe in miracles? Yes, we do. We do. Uniquely, we do. And yet, in another surprising twist of our deliverance, our judge shows up, and rather than taking up arms, rather than fighting a war, he says, actually, if you're my disciple, take and eat. This is my body broken for you. This is how I will win. Take and drink. This is my blood of a new covenant which is poured out for you. So we want to respond in worship by taking of the Lord's Supper. And we have a minute, so let's take our time here, okay? Because yes, this is a reminder that Jesus is with you always. It is. Yes, it's a reminder that Jesus forgives you no matter what you brought with you today. But it is also a reminder that Jesus is victorious on your behalf, that he's delivered you, that nothing can take that victory from you, and that he will come again. Do this in remembrance of him. This is our act, our response of worship today. Let me pray. Father, thank you for our deliverance in Jesus. Thank you for saving us in him, not not from our physical enemies, but from ourselves and our spiritual adversary who doesn't care who wins the war. He just wants us trapped in a cycle of idolatry and oppression. You saved us from that in Jesus. May we worship and adore him as we take and eat until he comes again. We pray this in his powerful name.